Thank you, Dan. <clears throat> Take your Bibles, if you would, and look with me at Luke chapter 8. Luke's Gospel chapter 8, we are in this um, amazing section where the Lord Jesus Christ does begin to speak in parables in front of the crowd. And as I read in Matthew's Gospel, it's the same here in Luke, he tells the disciples that the reason he's speaking in parables is because he is making sure that it is obvious who has ears to hear and who does not. And as a sentence on the hardness of some people's hearts, he's shutting them out from the truth. Over the years, I've observed all kinds of responses to preaching and to preachers, and I've kind of come up with you know, a list of those responses, kind of given each of them names. So uh, from a preacher's perspective and, and from any uh, Christian's perspective where they give the word of God to someone, they give the gospel of the kingdom to someone, you can see these various responses. But it is particularly noteworthy in church. When someone is preaching, there are all kinds of responses to it. First, you have the curious person. The curious person, and that, that person always likes to speak of exploring new ideas, and, and they, they like to exude neutrality. They, they want you to know they're fairly neutral on things, noncommittal. They're cordial while they're at church, but they keep people at arm's length, and uh, they call the sermon interesting. That's usually all you can get out of them. That was interesting. Then you have the critical person. This is the person who has a predisposed defensiveness when they come to church and hear a sermon. They, they avoid getting into discussions about content, but they're willing to pick on the environment. Yeah, the preacher wasn't really uh, that compelling or attention-grabbing. Point B of sub-point C was really, really bad and weak. And, uh, you know, in the end, the sermon was imbalanced, or they might just say it's an unfriendly church. Then you have what I call the contrived person, the contrived person. This is the person who throws out shallow compliments at church a lot. They, they also deflect any penetrating questions about someone's life, about the deeper things. They sit on the fringes, sit on the edges. They leave before the close of the service. They tell the preacher it was a nice sermon, and they can cannot get out of there fast enough. Then there's the conceited person. They listen to sermons, but they already know everything. When the pastor makes eye contact with them, they quickly look away or look to the floor because they wouldn't want to be viewed as a learner, hearing something for the first time to their heart. They nod a lot as if to say, mmm, I'm glad these peasants are hearing this around me. They, they're always citing the glory days of their pet theology and the days when they used to be at the forefront. Rarely do they speak about what God is teaching them currently. That's the conceited person. And then in church also, you have the cunning, the cunning person. This is the frequent flatterer in church, especially toward leaders. But they're always posing philosophical questions that cast doubt on clear teachings of scripture. They are uh, fanciful skeptics. They're visibly uncomfortable with definitive authoritative preaching. They always try to soften the exhortations. And they use subtle speech that often undermines church leadership. That's the cunning person. Then a a sixth kind of person I like to call the comatose. The comatose. This is the person who's impatient with the length of a sermon. They're always fidgeting. 
there's a, there's a fake smile, and, and maybe even their face goes on screensaver, right? They say they're listening, but their face is on screensaver. They're just, the monitor's off. They're just turned off. Uh, their eyes are closed. Their, their arms are crossed. They desperately avoid having to comment on the sermon, and they don't initiate interaction with others before or after a service. Then you have the childish, what I like to call the childish person. This is a person who's, who's um, emotionally moved more than intellectually interested. They're, they're often fixated primarily on the music of a service and the praise of a service rather than the teaching. They sometimes complain that sermons are too deep. They're listening intently, but they're easily distracted by trivialities. They, they are prone to declare opinions boldly, but, but they don't have a biblical backing, so they just are taking little sound bites here and there and formulating what they believe. And these kind of folks who may be believers in the church, but childish, they are prone to um, create error in the way that they mix things on a shallow level and to pass that error on inadvertently. And then lastly, you have what I like to call the craving the craving people. These are people who intensely gaze at all that comes from the Word of God. They seem to hang on every word from Scripture. They often ask for clarity from those around them who might be more mature. They ask for further resources. The pages of their Bible are becoming worn from searching it and reading it. Now, these are just observations of outward response to sermons and to preaching to the truth of the Word of God. But more important than the outward are, are the inward heart attitudes toward the truth. The condition of the heart is the issue. What is the heart of a person behind the response? Because that tells the real story. Every time the Word of God is proclaimed to someone, every time the kingdom of God is heralded, is spoken about, Every time the sovereign rule of God over the hearts of, and minds and lives of his people is declared to a sinner, and every time that sinner is told if they repent, they can have forgiveness. Every time that happens, it is not a casual event, it is not a trivial matter. In fact, eternity hangs in the balance in that kind of a situation because a soul is listening to the truth. And the only question is, do they have ears to hear? I may be able as a preacher only to see the outward responses to the message, but Jesus diagnoses the mind and the heart that drives their response. He looks at motives. He looks at what's deep down inside. Now, you remember just by way of review that last week we began chapter 8, and we began looking at how a ministry faithfully proclaims the kingdom of God and what we're to understand about that reality. In fact, if you're going to be faithful... You do what Jesus did. You do what the disciples did. And what we're going to see in the gospel of Luke from here on out, this is what they did. They went out, as it says in verse 1 of chapter 8, from one city and village to another, and they were heralding and evangelizing about the kingdom of God. That is to say, they were telling the king's message, which is what we do, that's our task, and they were speaking of the glad tidings or the good news. That's the two terms there. We're a herald and we speak good news 
about the kingdom of God. That is what we're doing when we preach. That's what we're doing when we share the gospel with someone. It is about Christ and his kingdom. So the first sign of a faithful ministry is outreaching. Faithful ministry, a faithful servant of the gospel is outreaching. You move forward. You don't just sit stagnant. You don't hold it into yourself. That's what he'll say later. If, if you have been given the gospel, you don't hide it under something. It's a light. It's a lamp. It is to go out. You don't reject it. If you do, you could be in some serious trouble as God may harden your heart against the truth. Secondly, we saw that a faithful ministry is Christ-exalting. It is about the kingdom of God. There is yet a future kingdom to come, a full expression of the kingdom promised all through redemptive history. It is a promised kingdom where God will have full reign and rule over all the earth. Sin will be dealt with. His sovereign rule will be in an actual kingdom with all of God's redeemed people and All that we're preaching now is that that particular era has dawned. It has dawned on the earth. We preach the kingdom power of Christ. We preach the arrival of the king in kingdom power. What is he doing in this kingdom? Well, he's not militarily taking over the earth yet. Pilate said, so you're a king, John 18. He said, it is true what you say, that I am a king. But he said, my kingdom's not of this realm, and if it were, we'd be trying to take over militarily. We'd be in a fight. And one day there will be a battle, and there will be no contest because Christ will rule, and he will reign, and he'll set up his kingdom, and even militarily will, with with the word of his mouth, destroy all of the pretense and arrogance that would, in the world's empires, come against Christ and his reign. But for now, he said, my kingdom's not of this realm. I came, he said, to testify to the truth. And then he said this to Pilate, John 18, 37, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate, you can't hear the truth because you're not of the truth. You don't hear my voice because you don't believe the truth. So that's what we do. We exalt Christ by speaking or testifying to the truth about the exalted king, Jesus Christ, who will fully rule in his final expression of the kingdom. But his power has arrived. He saves. He transforms hearts. If you will believe, he will save you from yourself, from God's wrath, from sin, from guilt. That's what we preach. And a faithful ministry doesn't stop preaching that. A faithful ministry is Christ-exalting as much as it is outreaching. Some people reach out, but they don't exalt Christ because they don't give the message of the gospel. And a lot of people have the message of gospel, but they don't reach out. You have to have both to be faithful, a clear Christ-exalting message from his word and an outreaching heart. Thirdly, I introduced it last time, a faithful ministry is sacrificing. It is sacrificing. Notice that the women... Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 8, they were with him. They had been forgiven. Some had been healed of terrible torment and illnesses. And notice the end of verse 3, they were contributing to their support out of their private means. You'll be interested to note that the reason Luke mentions this at the beginning is because he just finished talking about a woman who came into Simon's house and she loved him and worshipped him because she'd been forgiven much. 
Here you see Jesus going out in his ministry and you have women who love him and worship him because they've been forgiven much. There you see it. And in fact, you might be interested to note that at the end of this section, at the end of chapter 10, you have chapter 8, 9, and 10. And at the end of chapter 10, he mentions women again, worshiping and devoting themselves to Christ, Mary and Martha. So Luke kind of bookends this section of hearing and believing and serving and worshiping with these wonderful testimonies of these women who out of their own private means sacrificed to extend the kingdom. A faithful ministry is outreaching. A faithful ministry is Christ exalting. And a faithful ministry is sacrificing. I want to do everything I can to promote the gospel of the kingdom. Don't you? Don't you want to just do more than spectate? You just want to jump in and put your hand to the plow, whatever God's given you to do, however he's talented you and gifted you. You want to roll up your sleeves and promote it because if you've been forgiven, that's what a Christian does to worship Christ. Fourthly, a faithful ministry is polarizing. Polarizing. What do we mean by polarizing? Well, simply that when we do proclaim Christ, when the message of the kingdom of God is declared, it demands a response, and that response exposes the heart. It exposes the heart. People sometimes come here to Grace Emmanuel and they hear a sermon, and they think they're casting judgment upon the church or upon the sermon or upon Christianity or upon the content. They think that somehow they're looking at the exposure of all us foolish people. They think that they have a right to stand in judgment on the beliefs of Christianity. And ultimately their response to the truth has exposed where their heart is at. They're the one that is exposed. They're the one where a line has been drawn in their heart. They're the ones that have to face the polarizing message of the gospel. I said to you last at the beginning that there were these outward signs sometimes that a preacher sees but in the parable before us Jesus takes us inward Jesus takes us to the very heart that drives people's response to the truth I read Matthew's account of the parable but let me just read Luke's account verse 4 when a large crowd was coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him he spoke by way of a parable The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And as he said these things, he would call out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, 
receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in a time of temptation, fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and hold it fast, and bear fruit with perseverance. Now, as I said to you last time, Jesus is doing something here that is actually, when you think about it, quite frightening. The Pharisees, according to Matthew's gospel, had at this point in Jesus' ministry totally rejected him and hardened against him, and it was expressed in one final accusation. In Matthew 12, 24, they said, you cast out demons by the power of the prince of demons. So Jesus demonstrated power over the kingdom of darkness, which means that if he promises to save, he promises to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son, then he demonstrated he has power to do that. Demons have to obey him. Demons have to run from him. Demons have to declare that he is the son of God, that he is the God-man, he is the Messiah. They were forced to declare it. And they were forced to obey at his command. Get out of that person. They're gone. He had demonstrated his ability, his power, to take a sinner from the bondage of darkness, like Mary Magdalene, and completely heal her so that she now loves him, worships him, and is devoted to him. And the Pharisees looked at his power, looked it in the face, stared at it right in front of them when they couldn't do anything through exorcisms and incantations and all kinds of attempts to get rid of the demonic torment. They stared Christ's power in the face and they said, you do that because you're satanic. Now, if you are so hard-hearted that the power of heaven doesn't frighten you, that the power of God doesn't stun you, that the power of Christ himself doesn't make you feel like heavenly eyes are penetrating down into the darkness of your heart. If you, in that moment, when you see it face to face, and you were a Pharisee in the first century, and you conclude that it's demonic, why in the world would you be concluding it's demonic? Because you believe Jesus to be a phony, and you believe yourself to be your own savior. They were hardened. And so here is what Jesus does as a judgment. Verse 10, to the rest, it is in parables in order that seeing they may not actually see the truth and hearing they may not actually understand the truth. He speaks in parables so that those with soft hearts would hear it and understand the truth of the kingdom but those with hard hearts would be prevented. You say, would God do that? Yes, he does in his wrath. Maybe this is the umpteenth sermon you've heard on the gospel or Christ or the power of God or repentance or faith. Maybe this is a sermon you've heard over and over again as you've grown up in the church. 
Be careful, my friend. Beware. Look at verse 18. Take care how you listen. Be careful how you listen. Because God does, as an act of judgment, deafen hardened ears and blind hardened hearts. Jesus begins the parable with familiar language. If you lived in an agrarian society, an agrarian culture, you would already know, it'd be a visual in your mind that the landscape was carpeted with farmland. It was carpeted with farms and there were highways that cut through the fields for both the farmer to get around his crops and the travelers going through the area. And you would have known that there was dry ground where the soil lacked sufficient moisture to prepare the nutrients to nourish a healthy root. And you would have also understood that there were weed-infested areas and that if you were ever going to grow anything in that area, you had to get rid of it and clear the land and till the soil because the weeds would otherwise overgrow and kill off the newly sprouting seedlings. You, You knew it. It was embedded into your eyesight just from looking around the area. You also knew there was good soil because you could look out on the landscape and you could see fertile ground and you could see crops producing fruit and there was good soil and there was water and there was nourishment. And if there was good crop, there was livelihood for the generations. There was security for your family. If you had a good crop, you were wealthy in that kind of place in the world. And so this is a parable about life in the kingdom. There's a king And there's his people. There's a kingdom over which he is a king. And there is yet the fullest expression of that kingdom, but there's kingdom power that has dawned upon the land right now. And there are kingdom citizens who are identified in a certain way that clearly marks them out from those that aren't citizens of the kingdom. Because the kingdom operates on certain principles. And the very first principle of the kingdom involves who is a part of it and who is not. And so the the material question here is what brings a person into the kingdom and makes them a permanent subject of her splendor? That's the question. If there's a kingdom, if Christ is the king, if there's kingdom power that's dawned on the land, and if we are the ones speaking of that kingdom of God when we speak about Christ, then you are sitting under a message about the splendor of that kingdom and about its entrance and how a person gets in. That is the message that's embedded in this first parable. It is the entrance of the kingdom and how one becomes a permanent citizen of that kingdom. Now, the first thing you notice when you read the parable, is verse 11. It jumps out at you. Jesus says, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. So the first thing you notice about the parable is that there is one seed, one kind of seed, one message, one kind of message. And that message only comes from one source. There aren't multiple messages dressed up in multiple gimmicks to offer multiple attractions. Boy, has the church changed. Boy, has evangelicalism gotten caught up in a bunch of junk. There aren't multiple messages. 
And you don't dress up the message with all kinds of gimmicks in order to create multiple attractions around key issues in that message. There's only one issue, and that is how do you enter the kingdom and become a permanent citizen under the reign of Christ? And over the last several decades, churches have stumbled. They've either become afraid to preach the truth for fear that it would offend some people, or they think that the truth needs more clever and savvy communication, sometimes even entertainment, movie clips, etc., to get people to respond positively. Or churches simply don't think the Bible is relevant anymore to our contemporary day. Then you even have some who, the pastors of which have become lazy or distracted and don't really care much anymore. There are many who might have great zeal to reach people for Christ, But even some now, in the next generation, two generations later, in all this laziness and all this gimmickry, there are some who've gone out untrained. Ton of zeal, no training. All kinds of passion to reach people, but they rush out into ministry before they're trained to carefully handle the word of God. And so the seed they're throwing out there is not the seed that it should be. They're not trained to carefully handle the scripture, so they end up passionately teaching what ends up being nothing more than a pool of ignorance. John Albert Bengel in 1742 observed this, scripture is the foundation of the church. The church is the guardian of scripture. When the church is strong in health, the light of scripture shines bright. When the church is sick, scripture is corroded by neglect. And thus it happens that the outward form of Scripture, and, or at least the response to Scripture, and that of the church usually seem to exhibit simultaneously either health or else sickness. That's right. And as a rule, the way in which Scripture is being treated is in exact correspondence with the condition of the church. So why do we preach what we call ex- expository messages? First of all, it's the only reasonable response to an inerrant Bible. It's the only reasonable response to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The word of God is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God himself. So there's nothing left but to preach the meaning of the scripture in each passage so that we present exactly and entirely what was intended by God. Therefore, we're proclaiming the truth of God. There's only one seed. The sower goes out to sow seed. You don't change the seed. You don't get to change the seed. The seed was put in your bag by God. It's his word. And by the way, just think about it. If I preach something else other than scripture and give you some other seed, how are you going to evaluate it? By what standard will you evaluate whether it's truth or not? I mean, there's no way for you to be bound to Scripture unless you know it is the infallible Word of God accurately interpreted. We're not talking about nuances. We're talking about the clear, plain truth from the pages of Scripture. It's the only guarantee that what you're hearing is truth. And by the way, it's the only guarantee, therefore, that the Spirit is renewing your hearts because without an accurate Message from God's word preached straightforward, right from the scriptures. The spirit will not be renewing your mind. He works through his written word. This is why when Paul went into Corinth, fancy place, big orators, great communicators, 
tremendous intellects, powerful exhibitions of speaking prowess, influential philosophers, amazing questions, amazing high esoteric thoughts. And yet Paul comes rolling into Corinth and he says, you see all those methods, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5? You see all those methods that sort of dress up and, and attract the crowd with all this fancy? I've done away with all that. I'm just going to stand here and determine to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified for your sin. That's all I want to do. And they said, oh, what, who is this guy? He's not even popular. He's not even savvy. He doesn't have all the tricks. John MacArthur said, for those of you who want to preach the word accurately and powerfully because you understand the liability of doing anything less, for those of you who want to face the judge on the day of reckoning and experience the Lord's pleasure with your effort, and for those of you who are eager to let God speak his word through you as directly, confrontively, and powerfully as he gave it, and for those of you who want to see people transformed radically and living godly lives, there's only expository preaching, end quote. So when the message of the kingdom of God in Christ is the seed you're throwing out there and it's proclaimed straight from God's word, then you're sowing the seed, the only seed we've been given to sow. And notice Secondly, about this passage, that God's sovereign power alone opens the heart and mind. Verse 10, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables so that they don't see it. Listen, you, you may be uncomfortable with this, and next week I'm going to speak to this issue of the sovereignty of God in salvation, because we can't pass over this we do need to get to these first three soils a little bit here, and, and yet we can't pass over this reality that it is a sovereign God who alone opens the heart and mind. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, that ought to frighten you. Because he calls you to come, and he calls you to humble your heart. He calls you to come in faith. Now, from the divine perspective, he needs to do the drawing and the granting. From the human perspective, all he tells you to do is see your condition and humble yourself and believe. That's all he does. And when the truth goes out, you see where people's hearts are. And that's what Jesus does to the disciples. He explains to them why some people in their hearts from the human perspective don't believe. We know that God must grant it. Absolutely. We'll, we'll sort of sort out some of those challenges next week. It'll be really fun. But when it comes to sowing the seed, Jesus explains from the human side what's going on. What's happened when the seed goes out? Why is it not received with some? Notice the four responses to the seed, we'll only look at the three and we'll talk about the good soil next week. But we'll finish in talking about these three. Notice these first three responses to the seed. The first we'll call the, the sin-hardened heart. The sin-hardened heart. You remember verse 5 said the sower went out to sow his seed and as he sowed some fell beside the road and it was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air ate it up. Jesus explains verse 12 
explains this in verse 12 by saying, those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Now, just in thinking about verse 5 and the parabolic sort of uh, imagery that Jesus presents, you see two things in this first kind of ground that the seed falls on. The first thing you see is that it is untilled. It is untilled. It is ground that is beside the road, says the text in verse 5, and that it is trampled underfoot. So, just sort of drawing from the parallel what we now see about the human heart, just, just think about untilled ground. If you have roads going through the, the crops so that the farmer can get around his crops a bit with some of his equipment, and then you have the roads that cut through farmland acres so that travelers can go by, then you have years and years on that ground of running over the same kind of surface. And so the dirt is hard packed. It's years of travel, it's years of going by, it's years of paying little attention, it's untilled ground, it is hard packed, and very little will soften it, very little will turn up the hard surface to make what's underneath fruitful. Why? Because they need it for travel. It's where people travel, they pay no attention to the crops, you just drive by. The farmer uses it as a utility road, and then he goes down the furrow to deal with his fruit. It's an untilled ground. It's hardened. Second thing you notice is that it's uncultivated seed. Uncultivated seed. Notice the birds of the air eat it up quickly. So the seed keeps landing on that kind of ground, but it can't make its way past the hardened surface. It's an uncultivated seed. No one's paying attention to putting it in a hole. No one's paying attention to see that the ground is soft enough to receive it. No one's paying attention to water it. There's no attention being given to the seed that falls on the road. Verse 12 then says, those who have heard are those who are the, the ground on which the seed falls beside the road. They've heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so they'll not believe and be saved. Matthew 13, 19 says, they hear the word of the kingdom and they do not understand it. That's right. There has to be a softening. There has to be a drawing. There has to be a tilling, a cultivating for them to understand. So the message hits this kind of person. What kind of person are they? They're sin-hardened. In what sense? Years of running over the same sin patterns. Years of traveling in the same sin-soaked lifestyle. Sin is very seasoned in a person like this. And their heart is very hard-packed in it. Nothing, not even sin's earthly consequences, seems to soften the heart of this kind of person. You know, the two thieves on the cross, you had one on one side of Jesus, the other on the other side, and they were hurling abuse at him, and then all of a sudden, the soil of the one was beginning to demonstrate softness, and the seed was going in, but the other stayed hardened. Why is that so incongruous to us? Because he's hanging on a cross as a consequence for his own life choices, his own rebellion, and his own consequences aren't even softening him all the way to the end. He's going to lose his life by asphyxiation. He's going to be in excruciating physical pain. He is 
at the mercy of the controlling government. He's at the mercy of the consequences of his sentence. And as he dies a slow and painful death, maybe with even family members out there who are helpless to do anything about it, no one will help him, no friends. He's all alone, hanging between heaven and hell. And even the consequences of his own sin do not soften him. That's this person. Well-worn, traveled path of sin. Well-worn patterns, very hard-packed. And there's an uncultivated seed in this kind of person's life. The Word of God keeps landing on them like seed, but because they love their hardened practice of sin, the Word never penetrates. And Satan comes and quickly tears away the truth from their ears by his evil system. Listen, Satan never wants anyone to hear the actual truth, but more importantly, he never wants your heart to be receptive to it. So if he can bring a hardened person into church and make them more religious in their hardness, he's fine with that. He'd love to fill the church with Pharisees who are hardened against the truth, yet think they're on their way. They're living life upside down. They've climbed to the bottom of a well thinking they've risen to the top of a mountain, as the song says. They're backward. They're hardened. They don't see it. He has no problem with that, but he wants to take the truth away from soft hearts And yet he can't stop God from sowing seed and being merciful. And so when God scatters the seed of the gospel, Satan tries to make sure that he's already hardened that person in their sin and fuels their arrogance about their life of lawlessness. So that when the powerful word of God hits their ears, they can't hear the truth because they've never been humbled by their hopeless condition. Some of you young people are so... Uh, prone already to the sin that lives within you and you've hardened against the truth that you've grown up with in the church and in your family I'm cautioning you that's a well-worn pattern of sin that you're already developing do you not think that Satan can snatch the truth away from your ears before your heart is softened by life circumstances he can and often does it is in that sense that Satan snatches the truth away from the sin hardened heart Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, take care, brethren, lest you should, there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. But some of you have shared the gospel with people who've uh, shown some real enthusiasm Real change at first. And then they've fallen away. Notice verse 6, the superficial heart. Other seed fell on rocky soil. This isn't the sin hardens heart. This is the superficial heart. The seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. What did that mean? Verse 13, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy, but these have no firm root. And they believe for a while, and in a time of temptation, they fall away. So they're open, but there's no nourishment. There's some openings in the soil, but there isn't enough nutrient. What does that mean? Well, they hear the truth, and they're initially positive. They even seem to be desirous to be around Christians and around Christianity. 
And in them, there seems to be this euphoric sense of being better than they were before. You ever had that? They suddenly have confessed their sins, gotten it off their chest. They, f- they have a little sense of superficial releasing of guilt. Happens in counseling all the time with sometimes unbelievers. I'm sharing the gospel, and they confess their sin, and then they, they sort of express a, a profession of faith in Christ, and then they go, I just feel so free. But there has to be the moisture of humility and the softening of the soil so that it has the nutrients of confession and repentance in it. These people have a sense of joy in the moment. But then notice temptation. A time of temptation comes. Matthew says that Jesus indicated afflictions and persecutions. In other words, loving and serving Christ as Savior and Lord is going to cost them something about their reputation and their personal security. And so they have no firm root of conviction in the truth. They don't develop convictions. Why? Because they don't really believe it. They want the Christianity in terms of how it makes them feel better about themselves. They want the instant uh, euphoria that comes from getting sin and guilt off your chest. They, they want the... Uh, the security and reputation of being around a better people, a better moral environment. But the conviction of the truth isn't going down about who they are before Christ, so they never really believe in him. They are the superficial-hearted people. Thirdly, Jesus mentions the self-comforting heart. The self-comforting heart. Notice verse 7, other seed fell among the thorns. And the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. So you have some seed that falls among where there's thorns and weeds. And as the seed tries to take root, the the other stuff in the soil around them starts to choke and can't get the sprout to enjoy real life and deep roots. Verse 14 indicates that the seed that falls among thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, that is to say, as they live their life, they're choked with worries and riches and pleasures of life, and they bring no fruit to maturity. This is interesting. This is the person who hears a sermon, but Jesus indicated that certain things in life choke that out. They are the thorns and the roots of the weeds. First of all, worries, this is simply the word for earthly cares rather than eternal things. In other words, they're burdened and worried about achievements here. I got to take care of this. I got to do this. Earth is most important. My earthly life is most important. I got to get photo albums and picket fenced house and grandchildren that are doing what I want them to do. And Life here is my security. Life here is all what I'm about. They're not thinking about eternity. It's the earthly cares here. And then riches, the making and hoarding of material wealth. Why? Because you want the security of it, you want the power of it, you want the prestige of it, the reputation of it. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, you can't serve God and money. And then notice the pleasures of life. It is the word from, the Greek word, hedon, from which we get our word hedonism. A a love of pleasure for pleasure's sake. This is the, the love of adoring oneself 
by giving oneself the fleshly pleasures of life. That's what that word is referring to. So here's a person who receives the seed of the word of God and they hear it and then they go on their way as if they're going to live like a Christian but God tells them to worry about heavenly cares and not earthly cares and so as the pressures of life come and start to rob them of their earthly security and the burdens and things that they live for here on earth, they, they say, well, that's not what I'm all about. I'm not about eternal things. I'm about what's here on earth. And riches, start to, it starts to cost them their love of the power and prestige that come from wealth. And then the pleasures of life, this person hears the truth, but to love Christ and follow him, they'd have to lay everything dear to them on the altar They'd have to lay it all down before the Lord and and die to their self-comfort and the things that they love. And so they'd have to sacrifice earthly achievements, material wealth and power, and the the self-adoring pleasures that they've brought into their life. That has to be rooted out of their hearts so that Jesus Christ becomes first and highest. Matthew 10, 37, 39, this is what Jesus says. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. But he says, he who holds on to his life shall lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake shall find it. So all kinds of outward responses to sermons. Jesus gives us three very clear responses of the inner life that indicate unbelief. Which one are you? You Say, I'm I'm the good soil, Pastor. I'm, I'm saved. I'm thrilled. There can only be one way that you were of the good soil when the seed hit. It's that God had cultivated it. God had stirred it up. You had been humbled for a long time and softened and God provided the nutrients and the nourishment and the moisture of humbling circumstances and your hopeless condition and the guilt of your sin. And the seed took root. Notice verse 15. They hear the word in an honest and good heart. That is to say, they're honest about their sin condition and they're ready to receive in humility what God says and what he offers. They don't want it their own way, Jesus and my reputation, Jesus and my sin, Jesus and my earthly goods, Jesus and my achievements, Jesus and my religious accomplishments, Jesus and my self-adoring pleasures, Jesus and my status. No, they come with what we'll look at next time as the submissive heart. The submissive heart. I don't know where your heart is, but a submissive heart produces fruit. The other three do not. One seed goes out, the gospel of the kingdom. You don't sit in judgment on that seed, whoever you are, wherever you are. You don't sit in judgment on it. We're just human instruments, so clearly you could pick on how well it's presented or the environment, and sometimes we can be unfriendly, and you might 
pick on that or you might say, you know, I'm not sure it has to cost that much or I don't know that I really believe that. But you're not sitting in judgment on us. Your response to the word is exposing, polarizing where your heart's really at. And so you need to be cautioned. Don't let unbelief grow in your heart. Go to God, plead for his mercy, ask him to cultivate the seed, cultivate the ground, cultivate the humility in your heart to receive it and grant you to hear it and see it with eyes and ears of faith. Next time, we'll look at God's sovereign work in it, how he draws us. We'll look at what the good soil does in its response. That's for next time. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your clear, penetrating parable and, and the fact that we as believers can understand it is a testimony to your gracious drawing and saving work. And Lord, there are some here upon whom the seed has fallen and it's, it's perhaps beside the road and hard-packed dirt or it's rocky and shallow-rooted or it's weeded, thorned, choked out. Lord, be merciful to each case here. But polarize the issue. May they not go away blind, but seeing. We pray in your name. Amen. Stand if you would. I'll just give you a quick reminder about tonight. Uh, Six o'clock, Dan Cadavos, our missionary of the Philippines. Uh, He and Edna will be with us, and he'll be speaking to you tonight. You don't want to miss it. We've already had a a tremendous Friday night, just uh, casually getting to know them on a personal level. Uh, and then last night had a very intimate time uh, just to hear from them on the needs of the ministry. And tonight you'll hear from him in his heart. You'll be able to talk to him at the, at the reception afterwards. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful time. If you're a guest with us this morning... Thank